You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey exploring the Rose City's most famous architectural and cultural landmarks, its forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populated them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've been exploring Portland's built environment for the past 20 years as a journalist and critic covering the city's architecture, arts, politics, and more. excited to share what I've learned and to learn along with you as we talk to a spectrum of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. PSU's music and theater and film programs, and its central auditorium, known as Lincoln Performance Hall, is also one of the city's busiest major performance spaces, with nonprofits like White Bird Dance regularly holding concerts there. I'm actually a White Bird attendee, a fan, and uh, I go fairly often, and it's great. But Lincoln Hall's history actually goes back much further than, say, the 2012 renovation by Bora Architects that made it into a performing arts venue. The building was completed in 1911, and it was originally known as Lincoln High School, which it remained until 1953 when PSU took possession. And I'm most interested in the fact that during those 42 years as Lincoln High, the school saw three of its students achieve international notoriety. There was Mark Rothko, a towering giant of 20th century American art and the abstract expressionist movement. He graduated from Lincoln in 1921. And there was Mel Blanc, a favorite of mine, because he was the voice of all Looney Tunes cartoons from Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck to Elmer Fudd, Porky Pig, and The Roadrunner. He also did voices for a host of other cartoons, Woody Woodpecker, Tom and Jerry, The Flintstones, The Jetsons. He even did voices for ad campaigns like Toucan Sam for Fruit Loop Cereal. It's so much that you almost wonder if there were other voice actors going, uh, Mel, can you help me here? I got I to gotta feed my family and you're taking all the jobs. Blank graduated from Lincoln High School in 1927. And then there was Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Gary Snyder, who graduated from Lincoln in 1947. He went on to become a member of the Beats Literary Group that included the great Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. And in fact, Kerouac's iconic novel, The Dharma Bums, is a fictionalized account of his adventures with Gary Snyder. Back in 1910, the architectural firm White House and Fulhue designed Lincoln in a classical revival style with allusions to classical Greek and Roman architecture. There's also a red brick facade that seems to, at least to me, announce itself as a school building, communicating the continuation of Western civilization over more than 2,000 years. Yet, I'm honestly most interested in this building as an incubator of talent. Maybe it's true that Mark Rothko would have become a famous artist whether he attended Lincoln or some other high school. In fact, I know that's true. The same, of course, goes for Blank and Snyder. But the people we meet as impressionable teens, whether it's teachers or classmates, do have an impact on how we see the world. I just hope none of this incredible trio of talents were getting hazed with snapping locker room towels or bathroom swirlies. Anyway, today we're going to speak with visual art writer and critic Jeff Yan, who believes Rothko's years in Portland made a big impact on his art. Then we'll talk with Michael Tingley, a principal at Portland's Bora Architects, Michael and his firm oversaw the building's 2012 renovation, which was not always a foregone conclusion. It could have been torn down. 
Lincoln Hall embodies what I love about exploring Portland. It's not a flashy building, but it has a simple elegance that kind of endures. And by preserving it, we preserve its layers of history, the stories it has to tell. Jeff Yan is a curator, critic, and writer based in Portland who writes principally for his own port blog, but has also contributed to a variety of national publications on visual art. He's also an art historian who has pioneered research into and arguments for the significance of Mark Rothko's time in Portland. Jeff, thanks very much for joining us. Glad to be here. So how do you think Rothko's years in Oregon from, I guess, 1913 and when he was 10 years old to 1921 when he graduated from Lincoln High School, how do you think that time really affected the, what became the mature style he developed as an artist with uh, these color fields or multi-form paintings? I always kind of love, maybe if it's slightly romantic or, or, or whatever, I've always loved the idea that there's a touch of Oregon's kind of gray overcast skies in some of those uh, multi-form paintings. Well, on a biographical level, uh, his time in Portland was a very tender age. You know, 10 years old, he leaves Russia and he comes to Portland, Oregon, and his father dies. Yeah. So it is literally the most biographically important moment in his life before he sort of makes his name as a world famous artist you have you you're a person mm-hmm. and and that is a, a life-changing event right and it shaped everything that came afterwards it's and almost it, like his rosebud sled moment certainly and you know it's like it's not like he knew exactly what he was going to be he looked into acting he took acting lessons with Clark Gable yeah he when he was a young boy he was selling newspapers underneath the Burnside bridge so he was a newsie uh-huh and and he was the sort of person who, you know, cared passionately about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was really into um, some things that would surprise people, which is like birth control was uh-huh. a major subject of his. Yeah. But at that age, you sort of need to understand, OK, yeah, uh, getting pregnant changes your life completely. He would mm-hmm. understand that because he had recently lost his father and he understood major events have consequences. Mm-hmm. He also was really into public transportation. He loved bridges. Mm-hmm. A lot of his early paintings have a lot of bridges in them, mm-hmm. kind of these manifold spatial constructions, if you want to get into the technical term of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd go out into the gorge and he wouldn't paint the trees necessarily. Instead of painting what everybody else would paint, he paints the bridge. He was into the structure of things. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of see how hanging out underneath the Burnside Bridge as a newsie shapes him. Uh-huh. And later on, when he moves to New York City, he's painting the subway system. Uh-huh. And that's where I think that love of rectilinearness is mm-hmm. actually maybe from that era. Yeah, yeah. I've always particularly taken note of a of watercolor he did during his time in Portland in, I believe, the 1930s that uh, is looking out at the Willamette River and the east side from a West Hills vantage point. And I, I think you've even researched where that location is. But it, what's interesting to me also is that it's a representational painting, but it somehow feels, at least to me, like a, a sort of antecedent or a precursor to his abstract color fields. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that painting or if there are other kind of hints that you get in his early work that point towards what would come later. Let's put it this way. He never really thought of himself as an abstract painter. He thought of himself as a painter of emotions. Like he wasn't painting 
the Oregon skies, but certainly there's something about these Blade Runner-esque skies we have in Portland with uh-huh. the, with the clouds uh, filtering the light through them the way they do. They make you conscious of the depth of light and color and form, which you do see that in his later works. It takes him a long time to really hit his stride as a painter. His his mature style took a long time to come. Yeah, yeah, kind of starting in maybe late forties, mid late forties. Uh, even even later than that, he really only hitting his 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 full stride in in the fifties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite Rothko paintings? By the way, uh, um, so I wonder if you see yourself or or find yourself responding more to his earlier kind of more bright and colorful multiform paintings of, of the 50s, uh, maybe say early 50s, or if you respond more to the kind of slightly darker, maybe more caustic paintings of the later 50s and of the 60s. I'm kind of a bright and sunny person, but uh, maybe my Norwegian <laughs> ancestry sort of influences this sort of interest in in, in sort of the dark Ragnaroki sort of moody or paintings. I like uh, what happened is in in 1958 he started hanging out with a uh, poet named uh, Stanley Kunitz. Before that, he'd been into myth mythology and a lot of uh, Freud and right. Nietzsche as well in terms of subject matter that he was interested in and mm-hmm. tragedy and mythos. So he started off a little brighter in the in the earlier part of the 50s, but as you get towards like 1958 or so. He's become famous. He wants to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think the darker colors are just sort of like his drive. Okay, now I'm famous. Now I've made my name. May, now I'm making a living at least at this, Yeah, which is hard as a painter. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're even, aware of your own style. Yeah, even back then. And so he's sort of looking at his trajectory, and he's given this Seagram's mural um, commission, which is a big deal. Those paintings be, are start... A, a darker turn for him mm-hmm. and he's trying to be more serious so serious that he actually gives up on the commission and thinks that the paintings are too important to be basically wallpaper for a bunch of fat cats yeah. se- eating their soup at the four seasons restaurant yeah in new uh, york city yeah and and a lot of the paintings have ended up over at the tate uh and uh there are 30 paintings and then not all of them were going to be used and mm-hmm. so he takes a darker turn my favorite paintings are actually uh from 1960 uh number 12 which is a uh, black and orange on purple and that's in the uh, Museum of Contemporary Arts collection in Los Angeles. It's oh. from the Panza collection. Very good painting, considered one of his best. Uh, so it's not really a, of a surprising choice. Also, number 14, which is kind of this orange and blue painting that's in SF MoMA's collection, mm-hmm. um, also from 1960. There's color in them. There's, there's a... There's a depth of color in mm-hmm. in those. And I think those are, those are my two favorites. And I love Panza's eye for Rothko paintings. He was probably the best Rothko collector out there. Uh Uh, There was a focus on his collection on uh, the passage of time and the awareness of time. If you see installations of the paintings at his home, he's got them in a stairway. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're recording time as you move around the house with them. Oh, I love that. The reason I love Rothko's mature work is that it feels to me Maybe less like just a visual image that you stare at and more of a kind of experiential art. And he really was a pioneer of that. I mean, all of the abstract expressionists had that. And he kind of he hit upon his mature style after Jackson Pollock and some of the others did. Mm-hmm. We're more into the myth thing and 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 Jackson with his action painting and dribbling of paint and stuff mm-hmm. like that. There was something more... 
I guess, serious about Rothko. He was, he was, uh, in that he, he wanted hit everything to mean a tremendous amount. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all did. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a very serious era of paintings. Yeah. What's interesting about that whole era is that he wanted to sort of get beyond painting. Uh-huh. I think he was bumping up against that. And he kind of is a precursor for installation art. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people like Robert Irwin and uh, numerous other light and space artists really owe a lot to him and his subject matter. That makes a lot of sense because if I'm not mistaken, he he got so involved and was so opinionated about the lighting of his pieces. Yeah, he was very specific about, uh, he had very specific ideas about the way his work should be installed and presented uh he liked it in lower light Mm -hmm. so you'd get up and he wanted people to get up close to them he wanted people to sort of be enveloped by the work Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'd like to take a step backwards in time and talk a little bit if we could about rothko's life when he was living here and and maybe to try and paint a little bit of a picture if you'll pardon the pun uh of, of his old neighborhood and and uh maybe it's worth noting that um it's kind of sad you know the neighborhood where he grew up is largely gone. I guess a lot of it would be the South Auditorium District, and and he, uh, I think there's a, a condo tower where his at least one of his houses would have been, and and that's part of what makes places like Lincoln Performance Hall or Shattuck School, where I believe he went to elementary school, important. Uh, but a lot of the places where Mark Rothko or Marcus Rothkowitz would have lived his life are are un- sadly long gone, right? Yeah, but a lot of them are, are still are still there. Obviously, he spent a lot of time underneath the the, the Burnside Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like his uncle's shop right nearby there, it's a parking lot, and there is no mention of him anywhere in the places uh, of the city. There's no plaque that says, "Oh, Marcus Rothkowitz used to sell newspapers mm-hmm. here." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, literally the most famous son of Portland, Oregon, and. There's no mention of him. And that's part of the reason I wanted that newer bridge that was eventually named the Tillicum Crossing, named after Mark Rothko, because he spent a lot of time under bridges and it would have ended up in his old neighborhood it, it because things have been built over and changed. It would have been a way to uh, give him his due, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, as we think about Mark Rothko in Portland, uh, what would you say his legacy is, if any, for the local arts community? And is it different than the legacy that would exist for artists in other cities? Or is it the same? Or uh, do you feel like he has some kind of particular pull on Oregon artists or or curators? Uh, And and what about the city reclaiming him as a kind of favorite son in a way? I I think that's something that you've been part of the conversation about. Uh, um, Do you feel like he, he... is a, a favorite son of Portland, and and does he belong to Portland more than New York or to Davinsk or, or to all three? And how do you see that? Well, first of all, no place owns their artists. They, uh, they're kind of a gift, and you kind of need to take note of them when you have them. Uh, so he's just as much a part of New York City, especially his mature career, as he is Portland, Oregon. But the years that he spent here were important. He got his early training. What I think is important about Mark Rothko to the art scene around here is a lot of us knew that he was from Portland, Oregon when we moved here. There was a like this wave, this huge wave of artists that moved to Portland. And I kind of, I guess, was probably the most vocal voice of that group of uh, the wave of artists. And there's still waves of new people coming in. Uh-huh. But we saw Mark Rothko as, hey, here's somebody serious. We have ambitions as well. Mm-hmm. This can be a place where things happen. When I first moved here, people said, this is a place where nothing happens. And and there was kind of this willful 
obscuring of Rothko's legacy and otherwise very intelligent and 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 learned people have this idea that he had nothing wanted to have nothing to do with Portland and all this other thing. He came back for his first fun honeymoon to Portland. He had his first museum solo show at the Portland Art Museum. Yes. And he came back numerous times. But there's kind of this urban legend that he didn't care. Yeah, yeah. And and in the it's just not supported by the facts. Obviously it's kind of a tenuous relationship the way mm-hmm. I have with places that like where I went to high school in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Going back home is always a little fraught because there's family there. Yeah. And you got to remember, Mark Rothko chose to be an artist during the Great Depression. Yeah. <laughs> which is a tough thing to explain to your family members. Yes. <laughs> Why he's so important to us now is that we have a great art scene, but a lot of the city's cultural plumbing and support structures are not really built to support serious arts and serious art endeavors. Uh And there's this sense that, you know, if you can take Rothko seriously, maybe you can start taking the things that are going on in your own, who people who are living and doing international caliber work here more seriously as well. But if Mark Rothko can't get a fair shake, nobody can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that's part of why he's so important. He's he's like the egg tooth for this city civically getting its act together. The thing is, is that the artists have made Portland a very interesting place. Yeah. And that's why Mark uh, Mark Rothko had to live in New York City. That's the place you had to go. Well, eventually things come around and you can make a career from anywhere now because of the internet and everything else. So you have to make your choices. And um, I think we appreciate Mark Rothko because we appreciate the ambition and the fact that he was able to succeed because it was a hard road for him. And he was, he really struggled as an artist. He, he was always very serious, but until he hit his mature style, there was something very forced and difficult about Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. Um, But he he saw struggle and, and contention as being part of the process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you feel like it's possible or, or slightly more likely that he would have been able or might have wanted to stay in Portland or, or could have stayed in Portland or made more of his career here? You know, you kind of have to find your place on your own. So there are a lot of New Yorkers who moved to Portland to kind of build up on their art career. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It, it, it comes around. And like I said earlier on in the show, no place owns the artists. They don't own the, the writers, the mm-hmm. architects, the designers. Those are the people that give a place its quality. And we chose Portland because we like the amenities and the camaraderie that was available. Mm -hmm. And that's what Mark Rothko did when he moved to New York. But he also came back and he had his first museum solo show at the Portland Art Museum. Right, right. And there's a kind of relationship between... uh, urbanity and the landscape that exists here that that I would think an artist would respond to or at least recognize as being different uh, of a of an experience than living in New York and and to not want one without the other. Right. Well, I like to talk about uh, like the Pacific Northwest because the skies are so palpable here and the trees are kind of and the moss grows on everything that's, you know, there for longer than 10 minutes you'll you'll have a forest starting to grow. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it gives you a different concept of space. And New York City does the same thing to you when you're there because of the big buildings mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Those things will influence you. And yeah. uh, and they each gave influence in a different way. Maybe he gained a more appreciation for that subtle sky, those 
tones and hues that were available through the time they lived in Portland. But that's just conjecture. Uh, what's more important is to see that, you know, he had real ties here and he spent them mm-hmm. here. And, mm-hmm. and, and you can't do anything. You can't explain that away. Right. Uh, what do you think about as we get more and more time, get a couple of generations removed from the time of ab- abstract expressionism and, and the time in which Rothko was working in the 50s and 60s? Obviously, it seems like a good bet that artists like Rothko and, and Jackson Pollock and, and Clifford Still and others will, will always have a place in art history and in our museums. But do you feel like the way we talk about abstract expressionism has has changed over time? Well, it's still evolving. I mean, the female artists who were also active at that time, like Helen Frankenthaler and Lee Kreisner, um, they are getting more do mm-hmm. now and because they were also participants it, it was an era of a greatest generation to use the t- the term uh, but you know they would fight over their ideas and mm-hmm. art people would actually come to fisticuffs it meant a lot but they were also intellectually extremely curious and uh and they would go to war with one another over the various solutions that they came up with that's very protean and there is a sense that there's a seriousness of the art of that era that isn't always present right now and i i think uh, some people sort of long for that renewal of seriousness because the world has gotten much more serious uh in the last few years and and it seems like the art requires that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think of uh, the Rothko Pavilion? And and now that it seems to be going forward, do you feel satisfied with the way that's going to sort of maybe tell the Rothko story in Portland a little bit more? And what do you make of the kind of um, you know sometimes heated conversation about that uh, architectural space and how it relates to the to the kind of pass through sculpture court there? Well, it's a real thorny issue, certainly. We need to acknowledge Rothko in some way, and the pavilion's a great way to do it. I know the architects. I've met with them many times, and uh, they make great spaces. Mm -hmm. They've done some really wonderful art spaces. What I'm concerned about is sort of the seriousness of how the Rothko works are treated. Uh, Rothko paintings are not like every other painting. They have different uh, needs and different requirements for viewers. And this is a great time to do something that's a little more bespoke for this type of painting. Mm-hmm. Instead of just creating a simple white box that any painting could go into, create a uh, a space that has, you know, the lower ceilings, the somewhat l- lower light, a certain amount of intimacy that's present mm-hmm. so that you can have a real experience with the Rothko paintings. And I think that's Pam's real challenge because you can't treat it just like any other art. And it's a generalist museum. Nobody at the Portland Art Museum is a Rothko expert. Yeah. At the same time, uh, Rothko fans are probably some of the most heated and intellectually engaged and serious people you will find. Mm-hmm. And so you it, people either love or hate Rothko, and the people who love Rothko really love his work. So they're going to notice how these things are presented. Yeah. And the Portland Art Museum has to sort of rise to that seriousness of that challenge. Rothko liked to challenge institutions. Mm-hmm. That was his thing. Mm-hmm. So we were talking a painter who made his reputation off of challenging institutions, and you're going to have a pavilion with his name on it better step up. Interesting. Of course, he wasn't the only alumnus of 
of Lincoln who made a name for himself. We could also extend it if we were talking about Lincoln more generally to include its its uh, location that it's in now. You would also have Simpsons creator Matt Groening and musician Elliot Smith. And so whether it's just this location of, of Rothko and Mel Blanc and Gary Snyder at, at what's now Lincoln Performance Hall or more broadly, you know, what's in the water there? Well, I want to add one more name to it, which is Lewis... Kaufman, who was a famous musician who was actually very good friends with Mark Rothko. Ah. And he moved to New York City uh, and kind of introduced Mark Rothko to famous painters like Milton Avery and stuff like that. So if you have a tradition of being ambitious, it doesn't hurt for inspiring young people going forward. And that's why it's important to acknowledge Rothko. Mm -hmm. He's an important artist. He's from Portland, Oregon. It would be in the city's best interest in educating its citizens and children that somebody like that came out of this high school. Right, right. And, you know, he uh, he's a he's a product of Portland, Oregon, and also maybe it's worth saying uh, in this time and in this day and age that he's also an immigrant. And, and uh, he's part of the broader story of, of a kind of diaspora of uh, Europeans and people from other parts of the world um, kind of uh, fertilizing our soil with, with creative... Uh, talent. Yeah, a, a Russian Jew that was fleeing oppression. Uh, I mean, his, his father died because, but he felt it was important enough to, you know, move to Portland, Oregon to do that. So he risked his life to move his family to Portland. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as I think of, I feel like I can make connections both between Rothko and Blank and between Rothko and Gary Snyder in that I think of Rothko's work and Looney Tunes both kind of challenging authority in, in a certain way, especially, you know, this, the, the, the story of Bugs Bunny is, also, is always just kind of responding to authority. And yet I can also, in my mind, connect Rothko and Gary Snyder or, or perhaps connect Rothko and the Beats with this kind of almost spiritual, you know, Kerouac's Howling at the Moon and Rothko's Color Fields being a kind of spiritual experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, Rothko is definitely immersed in in that whole time. Uh, Mythology and uh, archetypes, that was, uh, those were major talking points for the existential conversations that the abstract expressionist painters were having at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Jeff Yon, thanks very much for talking with us. Glad to be here. quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials, who helps make all of this possible. They also have helped make Portland possible in a way, since a lot of the city was built with their products. That cool brick building? It could be Mutual Materials. And that exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store? It might be slim brick tile for Mutual Materials. And those outdoor spaces with paved patios and retaining walls and fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials, too. So if you're looking for masonry or hardscape products, I recommend you check out Mutual Materials. And listen to the end of this show for a free resource you might want to check out. Michael Tingley is a principal with Portland's Bora Architects, which has designed a variety of arts and higher education and innovative workplaces around Portland and throughout the United States. He studied architecture at Harvard University, and his recent projects include offices for Airbnb in Portland, the Learning Innovation Center at Oregon State University in Corvallis, and the Walton Arts Center in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I think I first interviewed you, Michael, about 15 years ago when Bora designed the 
Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati, which I got to say again is a very inspiring project. And more broadly, Bora has designed a host of noteworthy projects here in town from the Adidas headquarters in North Portland to the Cosmopolitan Condos Tower in the Pearl District, another one I like. Michael and his team were also responsible for the 2012 renovation of Lincoln Hall, which earned a platinum rating from the U.S. Green Building Council's lead rating system and transformed this old high school into a state-of-the-art performance venue that it is today. So, Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. So if I'm not mistaken, this building was in kind of bad shape when you guys first took a look at it, and it might conceivably have been torn down. Uh, Is that true? And could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, Brian. Uh, You're absolutely right. Lincoln Hall was considered kind of the poster child for deferred maintenance in the state Uh uh, system in the early 2000s. A group of state legislatures toured it, uh, and there was a big debate about whether the building was even worth saving. It dates to the fact that Lincoln Hall was the very first building for uh, Portland State. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it was sold to then Vanport College for a dollar in 1955 whenever a PPS moved to the new Lincoln High School. And that sales price reflected the condition the building was in <laughs> in that time. So uh, when when we came on the scene 50 years later, there were still uh, things in that building that dated back from 1955 that had not yet been addressed. Wow. Um, had mechanical and electrical systems that were way out of date. They were over 50 years old. Um, structural challenges, especially for a building that uh, housed audiences, uh, nothing to kind of resist earthquake uh, forces. Um, basement extended underneath the sidewalk on Broadway, and mm. it was held up with uh, two-by-fours and plywood. <laughs> it was, like, even scary to kind of knowing that to walk on the sidewalk. So... Water intrusion, uh, hazardous materials, uh, you name it. The the wood windows in the building were just a lot of more rotting in place. So uh, I really think that it was the legacy of the building, both its uh, kind of role in the history of the city and its role for Portland State University, combined the fact that it, it is a beautiful building. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a kind of a signature building from that era. So all those things kind of convinced them to save it, even though it was questionable if it would have been less expensive to, uh, to take it down and replace it. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes these old buildings can be pretty dark inside, though. And one of the things I like about Bohr's renovation is that it really changed that. And, and it seemed like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you added maybe some new light wells or, or other uh, types of ways of introducing more natural light. Um, and there's also this wall of glass on the Broadway side, which kind of makes me think of another idea, too. I, I, I really I like how that glass wall makes it clear that the building is a kind of hybrid of old and new. And so could you talk a little bit about your intent there? Sure. Well, uh, the building, interestingly enough, when when we started studying it, and planning out how we were going to do the re- renovation, we uh, drew from the logic of the original design. So uh, surprisingly enough, there were two light wells in the building when it was first built that were open to the air and went all the way to the basement ah. on either side of, uh, of the theater space. Part of what we were doing was a seismic upgrade, and it turned out that the old light wells were kind of the most strategic place to insert new uh, structural uh, lines that would brace the building. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, we opened up the roof and took out some floors that had been infilled in a renovation they did in the 1970s to thread the steel down into the building. And then we just decided to uh, put skylights over it and, and kind of keep those uh, light wells, kind of reclaim them in a way. And we took out a lot of material that had been used to infill windows that looked out into those white light wells from inside the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you ended up with this uh, inside of a building that, that is kind of bathed in natural light and also has these really interesting views that kind of connect you from one level to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and we even got uh, recognition by the State Historic Preservation Office, which we had to coordinate with because it's uh, a building of uh, history in the, in the state system. Uh, we got extra credits from them for uh, doing that work and kind of re- reclaiming something that was part of the original fabric of the building. That's great. Then, uh, then on the Broadway side, a driver for the uh, uh, the Glass Bay is really uh, to kind of turn what was originally the back side of the building, the service side of the building, into a new front door. Because yeah. Broadway is now uh, kind of the entertainment street in Portland, and it's the street that everybody kind of knows. Uh, so it was strange for the most prominent face of the building to actually not have any public entry on it. Yeah. So it was both creating that entrance and also recapturing some uh, space behind the uh, the fly tower of the theater to create some new uh, teaching studios there. Um, and that glass bay also kind of provides visibility at night to kind of the instruction. There's a lot of dance classes that take place there. Mm-hmm. You can see them whenever you walk by on the street. And it also provides when you're in those spaces this beautiful connection back to the city. So it's a kind of connection between those two spaces. That's wonderful. Uh, And also that wall of the building was the one piece of fabric on the exterior of the building that wasn't original. So Mm -hmm. the glass uh, bay doesn't really impact that historic fabric. So again, the State Historic Preservation Office said they were in favor of doing it and that they liked the contrast between the historic and the modern. Uh, And it kind of tells you a little bit about the... I think the contemporary art and the contemporary instruction that takes place inside the building, even though it's a historic building, there's modern things happening inside. Yeah, I love that fusion. And it's not necessarily something you get very often because of historic preservation laws, which are worth it for other reasons, too. But I often think of that idea of a like a tree sapling growing out of an old stump where, where you get a sense of the old and the new. It's something I've always enjoyed. The other thing I wanted to ask you about the auditorium especially is uh, it's something I write about fairly often. I always find it interesting, the kind of art of acoustic design and and what makes uh, a wonderful space to listen to music or to watch a dance in or other kind of performing arts. And so what about the Lincoln Performance Hall, the, the auditorium itself? Could you talk about the challenge of making them great spaces to just to be an arts patron in? So uh, Lincoln Hall actually has uh, three performance spaces in the building. Ah. It's got the the 400-seat main theater that's uh, uh, on an upper level. And then on the lower level, it's got the black box theater, which we created out of uh, reclaimed space. It used to be a boiler room in Mm -hmm. the old building. And then uh, we renovated a lecture hall into a small recital hall. And the the recital hall sits directly under the main theater. And the black box theater sits across the corridor. And the top of the black box theater is right underneath the stage of the uh, main theater. So one of the first challenges is to keep the noise and the sound happening in each of those spaces from interrupting the other spaces. Because you want the ability to be able to perform or rehearse in all of them simultaneously. Mm -hmm. That is a really complicated process of both um, how you build up layers of construction to separate those spaces. But also there are a lot of pathways like 
duct work and conduit and electrical chases that can carry sound from one to another. So you've got to pay attention to a lot of different details to make that work. Internal to the rooms, it's a really complex balance between uh, sight lines and what it takes to give you a great visual experience and acoustics uh, and what it takes to give you a really good oral experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a lot about the physics of how sound moves in a space Mm -hmm. and different sound waves move uh, differently. So you want to create ways that you're bouncing that sound so it comes to your ears but you also want to have enough absorption so that you're not getting too many kind of echoes or uh, strange kind of sound interference that way. Mm-hmm. Lincoln, uh, the main theater, Lincoln Hall, is uh, revered in the city as a great room for dance in particular. Uh, and it's because uh, the seats in there are uh, raked fairly steeply. Yeah. A, and uh, there is no seat in that room where you can't really have a great view of the stage floor. Yeah. And that is super important for dance because uh, a lot of that action that you want people to see is happening, you know, at the feet level. Yeah. Um, and modern dance, a lot of times, you know, people will get down and do things on the floor, laying on the floor, get down quite low or, you know, spinning things, spinning people. And mm-hmm. being able to have great sight lines to the floor makes that room unique in Portland and a really special place for dance. Yeah. And that really rings true for me, too, because uh, I think I said something in the intro about being a a, a white bird fan. And, and there's this one of all things, there's this one Australian uh, dance artist, uh, choreographer named Lucy Guerin, and and she's been in town numerous times, and we seem to always get tickets. And so uh-huh. I've been in that room a lot, and it it is a pleasant uh, place to to see and hear performances. And and I'm unfortunately uh, not the tallest guy in the world, and so I enjoy that steeper rake. You know, I'm curious to hear from you what what you think arts facilities can do sometimes for communities around them and, and what it takes to really make a, an, an arts venue or a performance space successful. Performing arts uh, centers and theaters really are among my favorite projects uh, to work on. And, and I've done a number of them both here in Portland and elsewhere in the country. And, and what I think about whenever I'm working on, on any of these projects is kind of this idea of about what connects us and mm-hmm. what distinguishes us. When you travel to another city, uh, oftentimes you're there to see uh, performance or you're there to see art or you're there to see uh, a special environment. Yeah, These are the kind of legacy things that we leave behind. And performance spaces are a place for both entertainment, but they're also a place for discourse and exchange of ideas. They're a place where a community creates art that expresses what's unique about the culture of that city. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, performing art spaces are intrinsic to building a sense of community someplace yeah. and what's special about that community. Yeah, And uh, a lot of times we're working in civic situations or also working in university uh, settings. And universities are often the uh, place where there is the the kind of support to build uh, facilities that serve a broader audience because mm-hmm. uh, there's there's an educational component to it and universities are places of uh, of exchange of ideas that's what they're kind of there for so those things kind of end up going hand in hand that's great that's great 
So, you know, just out of curiosity, uh, maybe just for fun, I, I'm, I'm wondering if uh, you've ever been a fan of or been touched by the work of any of these uh, three people that we've talked about. You know, uh, are you the type who would go for, uh, you know, the, the sort of color field of a Mark Rothko? Or uh, are you like me, you know, who grew up watching thousands upon thousands of reruns of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck cartoons, or or maybe you're like some of us who got into the beats at some point and uh, read, you know, Jack Kerouac's On the Road or, or the Dharma Bums and, and about the adventures they were having. Of course, growing up as a child born in the 50s, uh, all the Looney Tunes and those things resonate in my mind. And, and when I was working on the Lincoln Hall Project, there were actually stories about uh, how Mel Blanc would try out different voices in the stairwells in the building. There are four iconic stairwells that have this unique kind of acoustic character to them. They're very reverberant and almost echoey. And sometimes uh, music students will go and practice an instrument in there. And and people would talk about Mel Blanc would try out these voices, these crazy voices in there that would echo through the uh, through the stairwell. So I did think about that when I was working on the project. Oh, my goodness. And... Uh, 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 Mark Rothko is uh, is an artist that I'm uh, really familiar with and have always admired his work. And uh, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to be in Houston, and there's a, a chapel. Yeah, there. the Rothko Chapel. Yes, which has uh, 14 paintings that he specifically uh, created for that environment, and, and he was also involved in shaping the building that housed them. It was, I think, one of the last projects that he did. Yes. So um, it's a non, uh, it's a spiritual place, but non-denominational. It's just a place for anybody to go in, and and it has that kind of amazing sense of being kind of out of time almost when you're in that space, and and you can just be surrounded by his work and and the way the light kind of softly, diffusedly comes into the room. So absolutely. Uh, Finally, before we say that's all, folks, uh, <laughs> what do you make of Portland State University since we're talking about a PSU building? We haven't really talked about the university itself. I think it's actually pretty extraordinary the way the university is growing, not just in terms of its student body size or that kind of thing, but becoming a more serious, prestigious university, not just a, a kind of middling commuter school, but a, a, an interesting urban university. Do you feel that way as well? I do. Uh, Portland State University, I think, has got a, a really uh, interesting symbiotic relationship with the city itself, and it's kind of evolving in tandem with the city. So its reputation, I believe, is is sort of growing in concert with the reputation of Portland in general. Uh, and whenever I uh, have had the occasion to be out of state and, and meet with students uh, in other universities or something, oftentimes uh, they will ask about Portland State University, that they're thinking of going to graduate studies and do I know anything about, you know, whether Portland State University is a good university mm -hmm. or, you know, is that a great place to study something, mm -hmm. whatever the subject they're in. Um, and I think it's interesting that they ask about Portland State University instead of asking about University of Oregon or Oregon State University, which are, con you know, considered to sort of be the flagship universities. Yeah, but, yeah. Or University of Portland, which is in its way, though smaller, uh, maybe traditionally viewed as a little bit more prestigious. Yes, and read. But uh, I think Portland State's now the biggest university in the city. And, and, and uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about the university is how uh, you feel like there's this real integration between the university and the city itself. You sometimes can't tell where one ends and the other one begins. Yeah. It's sort of spread out into the city. Uh, 
So as it grows, I think it's building a, a, an even richer kind of relationship with the city of Portland. I think you're right in in the way that it's sort of stitched into the fabric of the city, and yet there's something special, a kind of special energy about when you go on the Portland State campus specifically, and, and uh, I especially appreciate the fact that it feels like more of a true melting pot than the rest of our largely Caucasian city. Yes, yes. And Lincoln sitting right on the park blocks and sort of right on the corner between Portland State and the and the broader city. Uh, I love the way that it's kind of the um, front door to the campus. The oldest building is still the kind of front door to the campus and a great place where people who don't have any other connection to the university come to see performance and come to kind of uh, engage with, uh, with that sense of discourse and, and kind of exploration in the city. Yeah, yeah. I think we're on the same page there. Michael Tingley, thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. Brian, it was my pleasure. So there you have it. Many thanks to Jeff Yan for sharing some of his insights and passions about the great Mark Rothko. And thanks to Michael Tingley for taking us through the renovation of that building. In this podcast, we wound up concentrating more on Rothko than on the other two famous alumni of Lincoln High School, Mel Blank and Gary Snyder. So I'd like to talk about the latter two just a little bit more. Recently, I was flipping through a copy of Mel Blank's autobiography written in 1989 and appropriately titled, That's Not All, Folks. In the first line of the book, Mel Blank writes, quote, Even as a child, I heard voices. He then goes on to talk about how growing up in southwest Portland near downtown and how it was, in his words, quote, an ethnic mosaic. Blank's family lived in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood, but nearby, he writes, quote, were pockets of Germans, British, Canadians, Mexicans, and Japanese. Mill Blank was a natural mimic, and being in a culturally diverse setting encouraged his sense of guileless mimicry. It's funny because when I walk around the Portland State campus today where Lincoln Hall is, I find it invigorating in part because it's more diverse than the rest of the city. It's truly a melting pot like it was in Mel Blank's day. Something else from Blank's autobiography caught my eye too. As a child, he got into trouble a lot at school for speaking in different voices and naturally kind of clowning around. He recalls one teacher telling him, quote, you'll never amount to anything. You're just like your name, Blank. The comment stung enough that Mill Blank changed the spelling of his last name, ending it with a C instead of the K he'd been born with. One other highlight from Blank's autobiography related specifically to Lincoln Hall. He writes, Lincoln High had a cavernous hallway that produced a resounding echo. It was acoustically optimal, I determined, for trying out this new voice I'd been practicing, a shrill, cackling laugh. principal once caught Mill Blank doing this voice in the hallway, and he exploded, quote, I should kick you out of school. Thankfully, he never did. And about 15 years later, that cackling voice that Mill Blank was doing in the Lincoln Hall hallway became the signature laugh of cartoon icon Woody Woodpecker. And I'd like to read you a brief description of Snyder from one of my favorite books, Jack Kerouac's autobiographical novel, The Dharma Bums, from 1958. In chapter four, Kerouac and the great poet Allen Ginsberg take a jug of wine to visit Gary Snyder at his home in Berkeley, California, where they remark upon Snyder's dual nature, the quiet Buddhist and the the howl-at-the-moon hedonist. Gary Snyder in the book is known as Jaffe Ryder. Kerouac writes, quote, We came in the little door again. Jaffe looked up from his cross-legged study over a book 
American poetry this time, glasses on, and said nothing but, ah, in a strangely cultured tone. We took off our shoes and padded across the little five feet of straw to sit by him, but I was last with my shoes off and had the jug in my hand, which I turned to show from across the shack. And from his cross-legged position, Jaffe suddenly roared, Yah! And he leaped into the air and straight across the room to me, landing on his feet in a fencing position with a sudden dagger in his hand, the tip of it just barely stabbing the glass of the wine bottle with a small, distinct clink. It was the most amazing leap I ever saw in my life, except by nutty acrobats, much like a mountain goat, which he was, it turned out. Also, it reminded me of a Japanese samurai warrior, the yelling roar, the leap, the position, and his expression of comic wrath, his eyes bulging and making a big funny face at me, end quote. And finally, I'd like to leave you with a passage from one of Snyder's poems. This is from a 1996 collection called Mountains and Rivers Without End, which I'm happy to say I got to have signed by Gary Snyder at a book reading in New York City, where I also that night saw Allen Ginsberg in the audience. In Snyder's poem, Things to Do Around Portland, he writes, Go walk along the sandy river where the smelt run. Drink buttermilk at the buttermilk corner. Walk over the Hawthorne Bridge, the car tires sing. Take the trolley out to Selwood where cherries are in bloom. Hiking the woods below Council Crest, a treehouse high in a Douglas fir near the medical school. Bird watching and plant hunting on Savi Island in May. Vine maple leaves in the slopes above the St. John's Bridge in autumn, wading the Columbia out to the sandbars. Beer in Erickson's, hamburgers at the TikTok. Led down narrow corridors of courthouse, city hall, the newspapers, the radio, the jail. Parking in the park blocks. Sunburned skiing, shivering at the ocean, standing in the rain. Meanwhile, Lincoln Hall itself is keeping busy. This summer features performances by Chamber Music Northwest as part of their 2019 Summer Festival. There's a concert of Mozart clarinet music I kind of have my eye on. And this fall, White Bird Dance returns to Lincoln Hall. And Portland State University is reaching the end of its school year a time for some of the music and film students honing their voices inside Lincoln Hall to leave that architectural nest, just like Rothko, Blank, and Snyder did as newly minted high school graduates. Here's to that. We're getting closer to the end of the show, and here's that free resource from our sponsor, Mutual Materials. It's the Home and Yard Idea Book, which is filled with more than 150 pages of project photos from homes and yards across the Pacific Northwest. You can download it from mutualmaterials.com. In Search of Portland is brought to you by Mutual Materials and X-Ray FM. Thanks to our producers, Amalia Boyles and Ed Curtis. Thanks as well to my friends in the Washington, D.C. band Beauty Pill for providing the music for In Search of Portland. Their last album, Beauty Pill Describes Things As They Are, was named one of the top 50 albums of the year by both National Public Radio and Rolling Stone magazine. Keep an eye out for their next album, entitled Please Advise. And thanks as well to Nikolai Kruger for providing original artwork for each episode that you can find on our website. And speaking of which, you can find all episodes of this podcast at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again.